Welcome to Art & Company. I'm Alette Simmons-Jimenez, a Miami-based artist and your host on the program. Thanks for joining me in my studio where we have great conversations in the company of amazing people who drive and support the arts that shape our city. I hope you like what you hear. If you do, we'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have any questions, we'd love to answer them with our guests on an upcoming program. So don't be shy. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, and thanks for joining us today. It's the Monday of Miami Art Week, and I know everyone is already busy, busy around here. So we're happy you had the time to tune in. And actually, we're listening in on the other side of art, the nonprofit side. I sat down for a chat with two of Miami's leading ladies of alternative art spaces. Some things we covered were growing up with bad art and the highwaymen, lunatic asylums, and the Women's March. I hope you enjoy it. inspired you to take this route? Because I think there's a lot of young people that have ideas about what they want to do and don't know how to do it and don't know what it could lead to and, and it opens ideas for them. And because it is partly educational, I think, I don't know, I learn a lot from podcasts. I guess that's why. So uh, welcome everyone. This is episode 19 and um, I'm here today with Lori Mertes. Is that right, Mertes? And she's the director of Locus Projects, and Beth Boone, artistic and executive director of Miami Light Project. Right? That's that right. Correct? Good. Yes. Welcome, ladies. Thank Great you. Great to have you Thank here you. today. Before we get into the details about your lives and your views on what's happening in your part of the art world, as you know, directors of these uh, bigger non-project, uh, non-profit projects here in Miami, I want to know. Um, how you describe where you work, how you describe the organization for those people that have never heard of it. Because a lot of people are Miami listeners and they know, but a lot of people it's are not. It's a lunatic asylum! We're <laughs> <laughs> keeping Miami weird. So Lori, tell me, tell me about Locust Projects. What exactly is it? Uh, it's Miami's alternative, you know, in terms of the visual arts. It's... Um, a place where anything can happen and will and usually does, where we let artists realize it's it's in quotes like almost any project is up for grabs um, at Locust Projects. So you can have you know a swimming pool indoors with synchronized swimming, 
You can have uh, an artist who is, you know, jackhammering out the floors. You, you know, I've seen so that. <laughs> it, and then this yeah. is what I love about this lovely gathering you have for us here today with Beth is that we're this, we're both in the business of making art happen. We're supporting art being made and new work and commissioned work, and the idea that you know there's no pressure to have to conform to what like a commercial gallery you don't have it's not about selling it it's not about this is your museum show and you don't have the limits of a museum you can take risks experiment and push your practice and i really think that's that's that is an alternative to what a lot of our venues in the city are yeah i think it's kind of like a, a necessary thing it's an important uh, yeah. space to hold you and know. it's about you know that community right is mm -hmm. having a, a dialogue with your peers i mean it's what the founding vision locus was started by three artists and they had just recently graduated from art school that from pratt and they came back to them were from here and um they really missed the environment at grad school where you get to focus on your work you get to keep talking about your work and you keep getting to have this exchange with your peers and creating that community and that dialogue that keeps you working and pushing mm -hmm. and not being sort of in a vacuum of your studio alone. Right. And suddenly you're thrust out into the world, you gotta get a day job to support your practice. And then yes, where, and you don't have yet the, the street cred, the, right. the CV to get out to a gallery. You know, it's always that catch 22, you can't get a gallery without having had some <laughs> experience right. before or shown before. Um, having worked in a commercial gallery is my first job out of college. I know how I turned pretty much everybody down because <laughs> that's what you, you know the, the yeah. sort of environment. Um, so, and then not not being able to get shown in in museums. There's sort of this like where is that space in between? And alternative art spaces have been that space historically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Beth, well, tell us about every, everything yeah. she said. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get away with that. No, well, I have so many thoughts. Um, I, I totally agree. It's a space that has to be held. The alternative, the Lord, I, I always feel like, you know, we work sort of in the ether and in the corners and on the margins and, and the, the light box and Miami Light Project, which our space is called the light box. It, um, it's a laboratory. Uh, and the artists serve the scientists and they're experimenting on a daily basis. And so, you know, for me, that's, we do a multitude of things. I, I refer to us frequently as a, as a cultural center because we, we do currently have a space. At this point in our lives, we have a space that's the space we live in. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a laboratory, um, metaphorically speaking as well, right? Or figuratively speaking. And so artists, you know, they, if they don't have the opportunity to go and experiment and to fail, then they're never going to grow. And so mm -hmm. that's, the, that's, where, that's the place that I'm interested in being, in, you know, providing an opportunity in resources, people, space, money, access to other artists or other conversations, and watching the artists do their thing. I always, I'm always talking about, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, they get whatever it is. What is it? Is it five hundred billion dollars a year to experiment with teeny tiny pills that magically then and none of it ever comes out in the world? Right, it not <laughs> never comes out. That, that that's how much money is invested to come up with the one masterpiece that alleviates your headache. Mm 
Right. Well, so, you know, <laughs> so obviously we don't have those kind of resources to invest in artists, but it's an amazing how much a little, a little bit of money goes a long, long way. I'm always talking about Emily's list as well. Early money is like yeast. It is. It mm -hmm. is like yeast. And right. so we give modest, I mean, we're not a foundation, we're a cultural organization, right. but we give modest amounts of money by commissioning new work from artists and it launches careers and takes them on their path, their artistic path. And that's what I think is so interesting about the work sort of across the two organizations is that that resource, the support, the space, the opportunity, the time, I mean, we do have a residency component. Mm -hmm. People don't, we don't talk about that as actively, but too. you know, you put people up in a house and they can come and go from Locust at any time. They get a key yep. that, and we talk about the lab or the incubator, you know, and that is something that you don't get in more traditional venues. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. No. But you do, so, so Locust is, Visual arts, although a lot of performance happens there and different things that you would wonder, you know, what the sound. Going on? Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> but but then Miami Light Project is more geared towards the performance. Totally theater. geared toward performing arts. Right. Okay. Time based art, yeah. as we say in the galleries, right? Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not not uh, objects. Not, not objects. Yeah. 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 I have a very good choreographer friend, Pat Graining. And she always chastises me when I say that, you know, that we don't work in the visual arts. She's like, choreography and dance is visual art. So I, she schooled me on that. I know. So it I just try moves to, around. You know, the, the lines are really blurred. We had an artist last year, Nancy Davidson, very established sculptor with a great gallery in New York. And she had never had the opportunity to work in video with light. I reached out to Beth for some invite on lighting design. Love right. again. Um, and this was like a major opportunity for someone who was in almost her 80s. And she wouldn't have done it and to your earlier point in a museum show. Because that's not right? what the expectation would have been for that artist's right, work. Right, right. You've been that place where so many people have experimented in this new direction yeah. and it just suddenly takes off into yeah. something completely different. Corey Newkirk yeah. did his first video with us. And, um, you know, those are the, that's the that's, magic. Yeah, is. that it is what it's about to me. And let it happen. That Whatever is you exactly. Do, there you are, know? there should not be, it's art. There should not be any rules. And there also <laughs> has to be, I think, course. the space for people to take the leap and fall flat. That's okay. You yeah. know, I think that's it's okay. Safe, it's a safe environment for uh, that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, then you can kind of burst forth and grow and maybe your next thing is better. I, I, I think for us it took, I would say, two decades, or I've been the director for two decades. The, the founders are Karen Rubino and Janine Gross. They founded Miami Life Project in, in um, 1989. I almost, think, yeah. I almost can't say those numbers They're anymore. Ten, almost... 30 10 years, years older ago. than yeah. Locust, yeah. yeah. And um, they they are both they were both New York transplants and you know here at Miami at a time when there was not I mean there were definitely things going on but just not like now yeah. and they felt there was a void in the world of contemporary performance kind of experimental performance um, but I I can't remember exactly what my point was but I think it's that um, early on I uh, in my tenure we launched this program called Here and Now, which is mm -hmm. we commission new 
work by Miami-based artists. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, I mean, it's hard to say who's your favorite. Well, I only have one child, so I have one favorite child, right? <laughs> but in, in the, you know, in the work that we do, I mean, I love the, the music programs, we do the dance, everything, but, there, but I, here and now is very, very special to me because I think it's the thing that galvanized us as an organization. Because prior to that program, we had exceptional artists from all over the United States, and, and then we started to expand to bring artists from around the world to Miami, but we weren't really investing money in the artists who live here. And when that happens, you, um, you lose them. Right. You know, they go somewhere right. else. Uh, and it's so nice to see today that things are, you know, looking, looking inward to what we have here. Before people we lose them. People, yeah. people purposefully move here. People go away to school, they come back. People grow up and decide never to leave because they see there's a rich variety of options for them. Uh, and so, I, you know, I always made jokes about the Here and Now Festival. It's called the Is What It Is Festival. <laughs> Early on I was saying that to people because we would have people, you know, so we, the first one we did was in um, 1999. It had a couple of iterations. Actually, the first, in, in the very, very beginning, it was a, a kind of a showcase that was done in collaboration with Art Center South Florida. Um, and it was done at different places on the beach. But it wasn't a commissioning program, and then for a variety of reasons, it was a festival. Right? It was I a remember. Fest. Do you remember that? I yeah. do. And it was an extravaganza. I mean, there yeah. were just dozens upon dozens of people in it, and it came as a. It was a, um, sort of the culminating moment of the field. I thought that we needed to kind of take what was excellent about it and kind of go back to the drawing yeah. board and think, well, okay, how can we improve on this? And and what we came up with was, well, let's commission work from a modest number of artists, four to six artists, and they get three to five thousand dollars, and they get, you know, four to six to eight months in a space to make work, and then they present that work. And and again, you know, some of it was just home runs, and then those artists develop that work into evening length works that we then fully commissioned and presented that work, and that work went on to tour. Um, some of it, I, in, you know, in my view, wasn't great. Somebody else would think it was great, but you know, it was just it became the thing it was supposed to be, which is a, a laboratory and a place where people could take risks, mm -hmm. and um, but, you know that there was a the audience could experience it as as you know real work that was made with real thought, and there was a certain rigor to it. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. But we did call it the is what it is festival <laughs> when people were on their way out going, I didn't get that. I didn't like that. I was like, it was fifteen dollars. You yeah, know, like <laughs> it's free. It's a it was free. So this is a tricky place though too when it comes to the you know actually trying to raise money for what you do. Yes. And how to shift people's expectations that it's not product based, it's process based, right? And have you learned to correct that nut? Oh, Teach man. me. No, I actually am here to learn from you. <laughs> you know, and, and then you have that moment in time, which in your organization too, where your space is empty for a period of time. Yeah. So how do you continue to be relevant and, and awake and alive for your audience so that they don't disappear on you? Yes. Right. It is a right. constant, constant challenge. That treadmill is going on like. 4.5 miles an hour. Is that fast? Yeah. You're like oh, in a jog. Yeah. Yeah. It's steady. It's you a know, steady it's, it's jog. A steady it's a jog. good one though, yeah. It's How to, you know, 
you're not, it's not about what, you know, was the last thing. It's about what's the next thing and what's right. the process by which you've supported that artist in getting there. Right. That's what you're funding. And yeah, that you know, is it's, really it's amazing. Space. It is. Um, with all the different people that I've been talking to, and it seems to me like everyone is, is fighting this same battle. The artists are fighting it in their way. The writers are fighting it in their way. And now I have the two of you here with, you know, coming from a different direction, but it's the same. Well, we live in a society, in yeah. my view, that doesn't value culture. Exactly. Art and culture. Exactly. We, have no, we have no cultural policy in the United States of America. I mean, I, I find that just... I At can't one even, time, didn't they try to make like a cultural czar or somebody like that? I, I don't know, they I didn't, didn't call me. <laughs> <laughs> I would have taken that job. I don't know. I just, I, I think that, you know, how, you know... I don't even how know far that can we you have get if you don't, the President's Council on Art and Humanities. I don't even know if that... I left you know what? I know still, that it does exist because I, I have a friend who's DC on it. Oh, who, really? was, okay. who was, you know, all, the staff was leaving as right. the administration changed and there was a long period where they didn't know that anyone was right. going to actually get ever rehired because there was just a lack of interest. Yes. Yeah. You know, People, the Venice Biennale, we didn't know if we were going to get an right. artist in there. Right. Because they let it go on for so long. But it's... Definitely not a priority. It's not a oh, priority, no. and it's a it's a it's an it's an unending, ongoing challenge. Well, and, and finding and out, you know, there are great champions out there, but those champions too have everyone clawing at you know the opportunity to be seen and supported. Yes. So you know, while there's some great support out there, everyone is trying to chase the same nut, right? I think you know, having been away from Miami for twelve years. And having been yes. here for that like first early 90s when stuff started to massively shift. We had museums changing names and becoming collecting institute. We had so much happening. Miami didn't have a contemporary art museum. I mean, it was, the, the low was really the only museum for a period of time in the 70s. You get into the 80s, the Center for the Fine Arts was built as a Kunsthalle, which showed everything from Rodin, bronzes to history, right. American history paintings. Um, so you did not have an education across the base audience mm -hmm. of who lived in Miami. And you still had a lot of transient pop population. And you had um, artists who were teaching. There were some great moments that were happening. But there also weren't a lot of job opportunities. So there's this whole ecosystem yeah. that wasn't in place. And so we've seen things shift. I feel like now, back in Miami, I run into more art on the street than I do in any city that I like. I lived in DC, I lived in North Carolina, and I lived in um, Philadelphia. And I feel like there, you, you run into it even if you're not in the arts. It, it, it's in, you know, Wynwood is one example, yeah. right? So you mean literally, literally like art in the streets? Literally, it is on yes. the streets yes. in great. every way, yeah. shape, and form. And yeah. there's you know, no hierarchy. Yeah. There's no, right. like, yeah. Philadelphia is the land of sculptures of yes. all these, like, historic figures and bronze on horses right. and all this, this great. And they say that they have the largest public art sculpture collection in the country. But they disappear. These sculptures become part of gardens. They're in their proper place, you know, where they've been placed. Here, there's just sort of this like pioneering 
anything. Pop, you know, pop up anything. art everywhere. Yeah, and there's no right. hierarchy yeah. of value. It's the wild west. It is the it? wild west. And it's kind of interesting, you know, because I also thinking of that when I used to travel a lot through airports and stuff. I always would go like. And you know Miami, we don't have any of this. We don't have any. We do have a art in the in the airport, but back then it was very scarce. And, and but Miami had the first art and public places program nationally. We did really in the eighties. Maybe I that's got to check mine. Google it, but um, <laughs> yeah, we had well, one of but the there earliest. was only certain places where down yeah. Government Center and those areas where you'd find some outdoor art that you could we, bump into. That but, Oldenburg but, Bowl is yeah. amazing. We turned down the big Rosenquist star star thief piece. Do you guys know that story? No. Oh, damn. it's another story for another day. Um, Jim Rosenquist did an amazing mural that was supposed to be an art and public play out for the airport. And the, anyways, let's just say that this person did, had, did not see flying bacon in space. And so therefore Jim's painting that included some flying bacon wasn't wasn't appropriate. Appropriate for, and they lost this massive, amazing piece. That could have been. <laughs> and so yeah, Miami has seen a lot of change, but I do feel like, as far as the public's interaction with art, and then of course the phenomena that is Art Week and, and brought through with Art Basel, um, I feel like there's more potential for support for art and artists. But then there's still the education of teaching people some visual literacy, you know, around what are they looking at um, and how to really value it as part of being relevant to their lives, right? I mean, yeah, that's, I, 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 that's I agree. How does one approach that? What, well, what, talks. It's I hard. Think doing a, I, th I really do think, let me say it and then you can comment right. on it because then it's, <laughs> I'm, I can brag and then you can comment on it. But the program that, that Locust is doing with Art Center South Florida talks. Oh yeah, the is, talks are um, I mean, great. They're so well attended and they're interesting topics and you fly in great people and I, I feel like right there is a perfect example of how you are creating literacy around all of the creativity that has, uh, is, you know, percolating. I, I love that you we, say that. I, well, I love that you, and that's another way for both our programs to also exist in a different way. You know, the partnership was great because it allowed Locus to essentially double the number of curatorial speakers it was bringing in and triple the audience because, you know, partnering with Art Center, we were able to use the venue at Little Haiti Cultural Center. Yeah. But I, I do love, and I had thought about it too, that they're really hasn't been an opportunity for curators to just simply come and talk about their practice. Mm -hmm. Usually when I was at the museum, curators came to talk about their show. Right. One show that was on view for a brief moment in time, that show was going to go away and that curator's moment right there was going away. So what do they leave behind? You know, what stays with you? It's that show. Yep. So this particular series in Heidi Zuckerman was just fantastic, uh, really talking about what she's passionate about and her artists that she supported over time and you know how she really thinks about her practice. And I think that it is a really valuable thing for this community to, you know, because there's a lot of like how things happen and how things work that the public just doesn't they don't have know. access. Yeah. Yeah. And then they I can see how really it connects important. to the larger universe. I mean, the larger universe of art, 
world, but also just the universe, you know. In our and, everyday lives. In our well, everyday and, lives. And the Absolutely. difficulties that go with doing those things that they talk about, what, wherever they are, curators, artists, whatever, I think that it's so important that um, people out there that are just beginning to be interested in the arts or don't know that much about it or, or think they do, but they really don't, um, that they find out the day-to-day -day of those people, how much goes into that kind of stuff in the theater and performance art and, and putting up the shows at Locust. That, it's a lot of work. I mean, you know. Yeah, it's not a hobby. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, that, let's yeah. not even go there. Okay? It, it, it's, I love it because it's but, also the skills it requires. I mean, like, oh. I know it's the same for you, Beth, because you've got to know how to solve problems in every way, shape, and form, yes. whether it's, you know, technical or fabrication or resourcing something out, helping and somebody finds singers for something. Mm -hmm. Lighting, like, singers. I mean, like you become the printing and promotions and like these are Fabulous. all the components yeah. and you know. And you have to handle them all. Probably, well, I mean, I I mean you have wonderful, people. a small but mighty <laughs> team. Yes. That's what I always say, yeah. we are small but mighty. Right. But yeah, you. But you end up a, being a piece of every single thing, I'm sure. That the, um, you know, and when you started out, there probably weren't that many well, small but mighty people. Well, it was mean, probably smaller. <laughs> smaller. Yeah, and you uh, have to you have to deal with a lot of well, stuff no and learn comes, about it really And no one fast. comes out of school knowing how to do all of those things. Absolutely so, not. You know, Locust has been an incubator for people in the arts The field. workers, yes. The workers, and you know, you can point a finger at any institution in this town, you pretty much will find someone right. who has either interned or been a Locust art builder yes. teen, or you know has actually worked which is locust. another facet yes. to locust Absolutely. besides the artists yes, like themselves on the art. honey, we've not really talked about that before I, I but i think this is like a missed like it is, aspect it is. you talk about all of the preparators and oh, the technicians yeah. that you hire the labor that you you know the experts and people you bring in on a temporary basis they're part of the the eco Absolutely. art economic system yes. here and they're We're learning to also employ them. Yeah. We have, okay, so we have, let me tell you a bit, quickly about this program that we have that I, um, I can brag about it because I didn't create it. Somebody else did and then let me um, replicate it. Um, but when we were building the light box, we were trying to figure out, well, oh my, you know, you start, you're like, first you start with the idea, hey, let's build a theater. Let's build <laughs> a the show. Theater, put on a show. And then all of a sudden we were like, oh my God, we have to build a theater, you know, and it's like, it's a lot that you, you know, just yeah, there's the technical walls aspects and, and all electricity. That. Yeah. Well, and then it, the, the physical space was ready and we're like, now we need to train people how to, to run, this, run place. this place and um, and do it in a, in a way that is uh, affordable to us and a living wage for them. And, and, and then add on top of that, that we made a theater inside of a square concrete box. You know, it's not like it was built as this uh, acoustically perfect place or anything, but I think that we, I always tell people, we put the light box together, first of all, with lots of very generous grant contributions and extraordinary people, but there is a large mix of spit, sweat, <laughs> duct tape, and fairy dust that makes that place magical, I think. And so a colleague of mine, David Scheingold, who lives in New York and who worked for many years at Dance Theater Workshop, um, 
and as a senior producer there, and they had a similar thing come up for them when they built their building and then had to figure out how to staff it, and so they created an intern program. And the program was such that you put in X number of hours um, and you, you got training. I mean, you got like 80 hours of training, valuable training on light board operating and you know, hanging lights and sound operating and all this kind of stuff. And so then once you put in your, your hours, then you, you come in at you know, $10 an hour and then you go to 15 and then 20 and it pretty much caps out at that. And so we replicated the program. It's called the Technical Fellows Program. We got a modest grant from Miami-Dade County to, to do the program start, I mean, I think we started it eight years ago. And, um, and those are the people who make the Lightbox run, the Technical Fellows. So they've gotten training. They can figure out, and any, you got a problem in the theater, they can fix it. And then they go on and they are like running the place they, and they leave they and go they, on well they're can now get getting job. union jobs yeah. and they're working at the art center and they're working at uh, you know young arts and Miami Theater yeah. Center and all different places so anyway that's uh, that's a big part of it that it's people a big don't part know about. no one knows I mean I didn't even realize that yeah I, I that's I, amazing I tell more people about that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true because it is kind of you know the same that you're doing for the artists that bring right. the projects to here and now and, and whatever, there's this whole other behind the scenes stuff that are the same type of artist that are going to learn from it and they're, you know, that, that's a pretty amazing... Uh, yeah, it's those opportunities that um, I really think are foundational to this arts community growing because that's what I'm seeing are. too is having been gone, I've now seen these the generations, jobs. you know, young preparators yes. at MAM are now like our leading artists in the community who've gone on and have international right. careers. Right. You know, it's like, I'll, I love seeing that yeah. because it really has seeded the, these layers of expertise. Right. Yes. And, and that's important to continue. Yes. And even it should, I mean, maybe most of the uh, nonprofits around do the same job mm -hmm. maybe I'm, I'm not sure about that but but that is really needed like more because it is it's like planting seeds and it's so everything I know this is cliche to say but everything is so relatively new in Miami really too is. and I was thinking about um, you know I enjoy reading so many exceptional blogs and online magazines and um, you know different platforms where, where there's a discussion around you know culture in in Miami and and sometimes it dives into you know entertainment and sometimes it's you know food I think food is culture and entertaining right but but and sometimes it's around about the scene but just it, it, it appears to me, or at least my experience, is that with lots of different people writing in lots of different platforms about what's happening in Miami, that, that too is moving the needle or lifting mm -hmm. the tide, right? It's all of that makes the tide swell a little. And what's remarkable to me is that I moved here 24 years ago, and I mean, it, it was. It seems like it was just around well, thirty years ago that it was all being born. Has made Miami right. in a huge way. I mean, totally. It's, I don't think that can be discounted because even Locust, Locust started with these three artists, and they had a warehouse, but they didn't yet have a program. 
1998 and they started with a website first because one of them knew how to do code and was able to put together a website um and they, I remember, they I remember did an open call the first and shows so they had they got an artist from you know from somewhere beyond and that's where the idea of also pairing an artist from miami with someone not from miami and always having this sort of dialogue and throwing people together and creating yeah. new networks. But if we didn't have, I mean, because now look at it, all the blogs, the podcasts, yeah. all these things that take the message out in ways that, you know, mm -hmm. exponentially. Yeah. It does, it changes it exponentially. Because does. how else were people learning about, it was, you know, print journalism. Well, I was like, right. when I began. And art magazines. And when print, I began you know, this, I was like, I told you uh, it started as a lunch, not a podcast. And my daughter was the one that said, "Oh my God, that's a podcast." <laughs> and I said, "No, I don't know that much." And I said, "No." And I said, "Really?" And so we jumped into it, and she helped me get it get it going. Did you record the first one? Yep, yeah. we did. And it was a it it was it's great. It's one of it's our like most listened to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Later, I said, no, no, lunches Radio are not play. so great yeah. as podcasts <laughs> because the chewing even you could hear. But it's I actually, yeah. well, it's actually, and there were way too many people. There were six of us. And, but it was fun. It was super fast between all the different people. And, and it is actually one of our most listened to episodes. But, um, but I said, and her first suggestion, I said, but who would want to listen to a bunch of <laughs> artists sitting around talking about art? And she said, are you kidding me? People are really interested in Miami. They want to know. And I was like, a light bulb lit up. And I said, that's so interesting that there are people it's out there. It's a big world out there. And they know who we are, and they want to know more about us. because. We're young, we're not that well-known. Because we're fabulous. But, yeah, we're fabulous. <laughs> and they're finding that out. And I want to know a little bit about- What are you wearing? <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> tell me what you have on. Now, I want you to tell me that, so people actually know how you got where you are today. How did it like start? So Beth, tell me, when you were young, was there a lot of creativity in your family? Were there theater people? Yeah. What drove you in this? You know, what made you? I love this. I get to learn yeah. more about it. Yeah, I know. Well, now, I'm now I'm totally going to date myself, but my parents told me that they saw the exact moment when they discovered that I was going to be an actor because my background's in the theater, acting mm -hmm. and directing, and uh, and they would turn the television on. I'm quite sure it was before color television existed. Who knows? <laughs> And um, and uh, the show would come on, come on, and I would say, "I'm gonna be that one." And so I would, you know, I would, I would always like whenever we watched the show, I would identify with the character, and then I was that character. My parents together ran a not-for-profit organization, and so that's kind of in our blood. They were in the peace and social justice, civil rights kind mm -hmm. of um, realm. Um, but so then I, you know, they were just I don't know great people who never once said they would disown me if I went into the theater, whereas a lot of my friends in theater school said their parents had already disowned them. And mine were like, oh, it's great. Go for it. Yeah, my dad told me, because it's funny, I did, I had a moment when I wanted to act. My mother was. 
a dancer, singer, and an artist and everything. So I guess somehow it filtered down to me. But um, my dad took me aside and I remember I was in their bedroom and he said, you will not make any money acting. <laughs> Daddy was So go, right. go be an artist. Go be an artist. Because of course, being an artist, I was going to make a lot of money, you right. know. But yeah, I always go like, so yeah, thanks, Dad. Thanks for that guidance. My, my dad said flat out to my other, so I, we have, I have four sisters, but um, he said flat out, I'm really glad I had that third kid because you two weren't going to be supporting <laughs> She's the NASA rocket scientist, oh, so yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, my God. engineer. Yeah, um, we're useless to me. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. glad I had that third kid. So, so tell me a little bit about your. You youth. know, I, I you forgot it all. I forget it all. No, I mean, it's so funny because my family was not at all interested in the arts. Um, my mom, you know got into the dabbled in the 70s crafts macrame yeah. and you know flower arranging and varnishing furniture but um, I grew up on a small arc-like farm near Lion Country Safari oh, wow. um, so Florida very southern Florida um, I was a bookworm so you know I'd take my books and I'd get on a horse and I'd go in the woods and I'd sit in the woods and I'd read and then I'd That's performance art. <laughs> it is. Maybe. I'm like I think that's but really creative. I, you know we had this was amazing because then later on I learned about it but we had um, really bad art in the house like pictures of quail <laughs> flying but we had, my dad brought home these two paintings by, um, that he bought on the side of the road in Riviera Beach on US 1. They were highwaymen. Yes! Oh, highwaymen. Now, sad turn of events. I love them. I could stare at them forever. They were, you know, it was a cypress tree and the other was a palm tree. The very classic, you know, the water breaking, the sun coming through the clouds. And I could just stare at those suckers. I was a close looker. Like everything in nature, my plants, my animals, I was always looking very closely and observing. And, and observing. Yeah. So that's the only thing I can say. But as horrible as some of those paintings were, I loved the highwaymen, but those quail paintings, yeah. I could to this day describe them in such detail because everything in my visual world I was like sucked into. And that's the only thing. It was a high school art teacher who, who turned me on. Oh, yeah. Wow. You know, dad was a fireman, mom was a nurse, so there wasn't. So did you go? Never went to a museum. Did you, where did you go to study? Did you go to I study art? I went to University of Florida, and I had a portfolio that I got into the art department with photography. I was terrible. I was like the chemistry thing. This is dark room days. I sucked. I was really bad. I but, don't believe that. Yeah, but I loved. Well, yeah. She she broke the curriculum and showed slides of impressionist painters and post-impressionist painters, and told the story, and mm. the image and the story together shot off fireworks for me. And like that, I read every single thing I could on art and artists and why that what that painting was saying or what that artwork was saying. I didn't know what a curator was. <laughs> um, and I did really well in art history classes. I did not do well in all my visual arts classes, the hands-on. I had to take them. Um, so in, in, as a result, I know a lot about how things and how artists 
make things in their practice, which I think did serve me well. Um, but it's really the stories that got me. And I didn't know what I was going to do with an art history degree. And confluence of life events brought me to the curatorial world and suddenly sitting in a museum at like 24 years old as a junior Where was, curator, what, at the, which the, was at the time the Center for the Fine Arts, which right. became the Miami Art Museum, which became PAM. And right. I was there for 12 years and left as an assistant director and had been the curator for many That's years. That's when I met you. I am. Oh my God. Yeah, don't do I'm this. An, <laughs> Esther Park tells me I'm OG. I'm the OG of theater, whatever. <laughs> I've lived here a long time. I remember when it was CFA. I remember oh, when yes. it was Miami Art Museum. <laughs> all of that. That's a you good story. Stories. Yeah. There you go. I mean, no, but I can picture it. It's pretty. You, you literally painted a picture. I can see it. <laughs> right. No, I think that, that, that that's pretty interesting, and I think that is really important for what you do now. Oh, it's. Uh, that you did art. I, you know, I have, That you did I have do the art courses. My. I had three jobs coming out of school. I was a substitute teacher, because what else are you going to do with an art history degree? I was working the Clinique counter at Burdines, and I, was and I got a third job to work at a clothing store on Worth Avenue. Oh, wow. Because I was saving money to go get my master's degree, because I was like, okay, now what do I do? I'm going to end up teaching art history. That's all I can do. Right. And I end up um, meeting Jason Rubel through this You're funny kidding. story. He had just opened a gallery across the street, and um, actually, an artist had come into the shop wearing a T-shirt that said Ross Fleckner, and I and it was a tie-dye shirt, and I went crazy because I was like, "Oh my God!" I think of the chandelier paintings that I see hanging in your <laughs> studio. And I start going off about how much I loved his last paintings and blah blah blah, and the guy points and says, "Well, this is Ross Fleckner." <gasps> <laughs> I made a total ass of myself. This was up in West Palm Beach? This was in, on Worth Avenue, and Ross had just opened a show at Jason Rubel's gallery. It was Jason's second show. He's like, you should go meet this guy. He's like, you know, beautiful gallery. And so I went in, we start talking, and, and he offers me a job. That is a great and story. that's how I come Amazing. to be in Miami. And my first, like, phone call was, like, Jeff Koons. <laughs> wow! It, it was very... Special. I learned so much and being and he was running a, such a professional beautiful gallery um, it was way beyond Palm Beach's years at that time we had ladies who would come in with their purses and they'd see the concrete floors beautiful Richard Gluckman design and be like oh how sweet when are you opening when's the carpet coming <laughs> But oh it was very, very so that, special that just shows you. I mean, did you have any qualms about just walking in and because you were just going to go see the show, right? Or did you have? I was just curious. Just curious. That's the thing is that I think a lot of what happens to people. I didn't have any intention. I was just curious because I loved art, right? And you, you know. had to go see it once. You know, it was yeah. it was like suggested to you. I think that sometimes these suggestions and these little pointers and these little the universe pushes. Yes, you oh, exactly. Yeah. And I think you just have to be open to it, and then things happen. So a lot of that, when I talk to my guests, has been that's the process. Well, you either follow it or you don't. Well, that's, that's the thing. Right? It's like you know, you have to make choices, but uh, still, I think that being open to just following it, the urge, is important. Well, so I tell me you, oh Beth. 
Well, I was just going to say, though, that like that mirrors, like the way that you've led your life mirrors the kind of work that you're interested in now because you're interested in process. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, exactly. not that, it's not that wonderful products don't come as a result, you know, that can be in life or in the, or in the work that you're putting together, but um, and that's, a process-oriented life is the only one to live, isn't it? I mean, we don't ever get there. So, so tell me, so what, what about your experience where you are, ending up where you are now? How did you, did you study, you went off to study? Well, I studied acting, acting. and directing. I mean, where did you, where did you go to school? I was eight, I was like, I'm going to be an actor. Well, no, let me ask um, you, no, where first, where were you, where did you grow up? I was Words born Florida? in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> but I grew up in Washington, D.C. Okay. So that's where I identify as my, you know, place. Informative that's my place. That was my formative form. life. And so, <clears throat> you know, from the time, that, I mean, when we moved there, I was um, uh, eight, eight years old. And uh, my parents volunteered at Arena Stage, and I would go see plays with them. And we went to the mm -hmm. Smithsonian all the time, and to the National Symphony. And the Kennedy Center opened in the years that I was... Everyone knows exactly how old I am now, right? <laughs> the Kennedy Center opened around, the, you know, in the period that we, when we were there, and um, and so experience of uh, museums and museums, not galleries. But, you know, we weren't going to galleries or anything, but museums and um, and performance was a big part of our family life. Mm -hmm. And um, well, I, and they knew you had that inkling they from did. the, I'm going to be that one. Yes, <laughs> but it was never, you know, it was interesting in everything that they did. My parents never, uh, they, they were very much, they taught by example. The experience of, of, you know, culture writ large, right, was, uh, I mean, that was just like in our lives. Yeah. And uh, so when I went to college, I went to college at, um, to the, I went to the college, the College of Charleston, the College of Charleston, South Carolina, um, which is where Brandy Reddick went to college too. Did you know? Isn't that funny? <laughs> no, oh, she I saw that. she saw my degree on my wall one day. She's like, I went there. I went to the CFC too. <laughs> um, but so I went there, and I I picked that school because I always had this idea in my head that I wanted to go to a small liberal arts college in the South, and that I wanted to go to an urban graduate school in the Northeast. That was just this thing. I don't <laughs> know why. You had just, a plan. I was, you know, that was... Well, we do that was when all, we're that was age. kind of a dream. I <laughs> that was the place that the Spoleto Festival in Charleston is what, is where I had my very first exposure to the world of international contemporary performance. Because before that, it was, you know, it was plays, it was musicals, it was right. Hello Dolly and, and My Fair Lady and Neil Simon. This, and this is a foundation, though. This is what I think is so fabulous about having that experience. You build this visual vocabulary, the experiential, and then you, you're able to then move on to more contemporary and pushing the edge. And, you know, you don't need to repeat the things that have been done before. You know? Well, and then you, and also in doing that, you also kind of like, if you're lucky, you find your tribe, and that's what happened mm. to me. Like, I, I mean, I never that's felt that's a very important thing. It yeah. is a very as as a as a just as a young a young human, you know, trying to figure out where do I fit in in the world. Mm -hmm. It was revealed to me, and it wasn't that hard. I didn't, I really didn't have a whole lot of angst about it. I mean, I had angst about other things, but about like where I fit into the world as a 
worker and a doer and a beer. <laughs> I just found that early on. I mean, I was Which still is in my teens. amazing. I say, I'm still looking for my tribe. So finding your tribe that young must be have been really amazing, I think, when I look at it that way. Because I think to me, and maybe it's only my personal experience, to me that's such an important thing. For your identity. For everything you do. Yeah. Because when you feel that this is this is it, you know, this is where I am and these are my people and this is what I want to do with that, well then the rest is just do the job. Right. Because you you know, if you're spending many years finding your place, the exact place you're supposed to be and the people you're supposed to be with and the direction that you want, what you're creating, whatever it is you're creating, um, the direction you want it to take is informed by that. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have it, you're kind of like, <laughs> kind of like just kind of in the wilderness. In the you? wilderness, yeah, still searching true. and observing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is fine too. Like um, you know, the artist that you said was in her eighties that that was Nancy doing Lee. the video, which is fantastic. And I she mean, maybe seventy nine, so don't oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that that's. I mean, I I have to say that I enjoy my searching. And I think I'll probably, it's so ingrained in me right now that I probably will be when I'm 80, I'll still be searching. What is it that you want to do? Well, chances <laughs> are you will, because we sort of are who we are from pretty early on. I mean, people change, yeah. but not so much. <laughs> yeah, so, but anyway, so, so then what happened after college? Forget my. Oh, <laughs> I go off on a tangent. Uh, well, back after to, college, college, I uh, I worked for the Spoleto Festival for a year because I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, and so I took that year to apply, and I ended up getting into Brandeis University. And uh, you had what? A um, uh, bachelor in theater arts, or batch? I had a BA. I had a BA uh, um, with an emphasis in. I mean, theater was my major. Spanish mm -hmm. was my minor. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but it was, you know, Smart liberal girl. arts school. French. Yeah. Uses. Well, <laughs> I am glad that I studied Spanish. Um, but so then I went to, I did get an MFA from Brandeis because that was a professional theater training program. I mean, I was headed from New York, to, for New York. I was, from the time I was eight. Like, I, it's so weird to hear myself saying this now because I don't think of myself as a person who's like, oh, well, I'm doing this and then I'm doing this and then I'm not, you I'm not that person. Very, well, like, but I'm not that person, so I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm more, <laughs> I, I think of myself as more fluid than that, but I did have an idea. You were eight and knew what you were going to be. I did like, know I like, wanted to be an actor. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I'm playing that part. That's me. That's okay. my role. That's me. That's my role. Well, so I guess I did. Oh my gosh. I just discovered on this show that I had direction in my life. Who knew? Your self-determination is very yeah, strong. Yeah, you see, and that's probably where in you intention. said I had my tribe early on because... I am from the island of misfit boys and I knew where I wanted to live. I live. Oh, that's funny. Well, anyway, so that's how I, I mean, I was headed for New York and then I got to New York. But what was interesting, see, maybe that's in the latter part of my life I've been more, more unsure or oh, also known as less, yeah. less, less sure. We devolved. You know? I devolved. I started to <laughs> devolve. So I, I moved to New York. I lived there seven or so years. I loved it. It was wonderful. I founded a theater company with 
colleagues, from friends, you know, from, from Brandeis, and I, I, I loved my experience there, but seven years in, I was like, okay, wait a minute, it's freezing, it's dark, my apartment is the size of a postage stamp, what, you know, this is how I want to live my life. Right. Because I started to realize that even though I had, I didn't know this then, I'm, this is retrospect saying this, but even though I had found my tribe, as it were, and I knew I was in the theater and wanted to be in the theater, I had always headed toward New York because that's where you go if you want to be in the theater. I mean, you go to L.A. If you want, back then, you, know, you went to L.A. if you wanted to be in film, you went to New York if you wanted to be in the theater, but seven years in, I thought, you know what, yeah, I want to be in the theater, but I want to be in the tropics. I'm not kidding you. I was like, I was always happy when I went to the beach. I was always happy, happy in summer. I was always get, heading toward the sun. And so seven years in, I was like, well, I wonder what that would look like if I went to the place that I want to live and then figured out my work there. And that's how I got here. And I would say that I, there's some determination and there's some skill, but I have been very lucky. Very lucky. Or very open to that universe we were talking about. <laughs> and making things just work by, you know, it's... I mean, there's, there is... A, I'm a true believer in a, in a little bit of luck. You know, I think that goes a long way. But I also think the other thing is, you know, being receptive to what's happening and not so focused that you don't notice, you know, opportunities well, when they show up. that was my latter life wisdom. <laughs> my midlife wisdom <laughs> opened my eyes to, I don't know, new opportunity or something. Right. I have to say, I love Miami. So we haven't even gone there. Well, we have a little bit, but I mean, I think this city is spectacular. I love it here. I love that it's new. I love that people come from everywhere. I love that it's the tropics. I love, I even love it when it's you know, like screwed up. And you know, <laughs> I just think it's such a great place to, um, it's such an exciting place to live at such an exciting time. Yeah, I agree with that. No matter how small, insignificant you felt, you were part of yes. something that was happening. And everybody That's was small. Really, and yeah. everybody was insignificant. It was definitely a community. So, yeah. It was Definitely. a really. And it still is, yeah. The arts community is still a very, you know, you still are going to see still people feel it. You run across. I mean, people were shocked I left Miami because they're like, "You're like Miami's biggest tour guide," <laughs> 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 and yeah. you always, you're, you know, I love light, the beach, the, you know, I'm a, but I'm a native Floridian, and South Florida's been my home, and it kind of hit my top, and the museum was about to go through, you know, years of a building phase, and I had worked, I loved the process of working with artists, and I felt like I wasn't going to learn anymore staying in the city. I felt like I sucked everything I could at that well, moment. Well, and what great perspective you went away and gained, right? So where did you I go after? I trade it for the world. Where did you go after that? I went to Philadelphia and stayed there for five years, and then I moved on to North Carolina for a hot minute. I loved North Carolina. Where? What part were you? I in? was in Chapel Hill. Yeah. Oh, um, nice. Followed a boy. Yeah. <laughs> but I had the opportunity to take a break for the first time since I was 15 years old, and actually, like, I was still consulting, and I ended up becoming a consultant for the residency program at the McCall Center in Charlotte. But um, I had free time to cook and to garden and to wow. like build things that I hadn't 
to exercise muscles I hadn't used. So it was a really special five minute gift that sort of shifted my gears back. Um, and then moved to DC, which for five years, which was such a what treat. A great town. Not necessarily where my tribe was. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and then with the sort of shifts, but I feel very, very fortunate to have been able to help launch a program there at the Women's Museum. Yes really focusing on women, art, and social change. And that was a total career shift for me. And it, the director there, Susan Sterling, she, she called me out of the blue. She's like, Lori, I know you're in town now. Are you busy? <laughs> and like, I have this program I want to launch, but I don't know how, I don't know what it is yet. But how do you have a women's museum in the middle of DC and a woman running for president? And this museum doesn't have the relevance to younger audiences, how wow. do we shift that? And to be there for the Women's March, oh, oh yeah, holy moly, I'm like on the fifth floor <laughs> of the museum because I, my colleagues went on to the march, but we were gonna welcome people with hot cider and coffee and we were gonna do some programs and um, we were gonna do some bad women tours and <laughs> it was gonna be great. And I see this sea of pink coming towards us down the street, New York, and I'm like, they're coming! And then I went, oh shit, they're coming! <laughs> and we had like 3,000 people come oh in the door God. in like one hour. It was nuts. Wow. It was very special though. Like the sense of camaraderie and community and conviviality and they were exhausted. It was cold. But everyone just sat on every spare energy, inch of the, yeah. the museum. For so that like, that experience of again like where my heart lived is where a, what a museum, what an arts place can be as a place of gathering, a place of like yes. humanity, like that all brought all that back home. And then I got a call out of the blue, said, come on back home. The future, do you think it's going to be bigger and better? Do you think it's hard to survive right now? It, or is it just like almost an unknown with the political situation we have and who knows where that's going? But. Well, are you t so we got a local and a global aspect <laughs> going on here. Yeah. Well, let's do the local first. Locally, how's it? What's it look like in Miami these days? We're space vulnerable organizations. I mean, that's that's true. In a, that in a city that you know, space and, and funds for space are limited, and um, being able to sustain that. It's is really the most hard. important thing, probably, well, right? Or it, it's an existential question, isn't it? Um, what I, I wanted to make a quick comment. Isn't it interesting that that was kind of the question that Victoria Rogers posed to us when we spoke to her board? This was about a year ago. Yeah. Right. Yes. It was kind of it was a broad question. It was a very difficult to answer question. Yeah. And I don't think that we did answer it. Oh, I totally. Did. I, I, I was didn't. like. I, it, but I, it was I thought we were going like, to talk about it for an hour. Right. Not like right. two minutes. It was a short thing, <laughs> but it was kind of the question posed was, you know, the future of, well, in, in my case, the future of theater, you know, or in Laura's case, the future of art. And then I think Franklin was there. And who else Education was there? Education and art. Education. And, and then there was poetry. Yeah, poetry. And Scott was there. Anyway, I, I think that cataclysmic change is a common. I'm all for that. Well, I am too. Um, Asterix. Um, I worry about the organizations that live on the fringe 
that are alternative by design, that are flexible by design, that are other by design. Um, and I worry about organizations like ours because it is true that funding is and really always has been volatile. Uh, there are periods where it's more volatile than other periods. I think we have entered a phase where there's great uncertainty in public funding because of the current uh, political climate. And, um, and I, I also think that we live in a time that is, you know, that will prove to be probably um, um, fertile for artists because there's a lot to push up against, right? Mm -hmm. And as you're pushing up against things, I think we are in such a time that there is great risk to freedom of speech. I mean, I, I know that there's lots of articles out there that talk about, yeah, but remember the bubonic plague, or, you know, remember World War II, and, you know, people are, and, you know, all of these wretched things in history. Um, certainly, this is true, the world is long, Continued, you know, and, yeah. and world history, well, it's actually short by comparison to right. star, <laughs> star history. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I'm worried about the, the world that we live in right now uh, and artists' ability to continue to push up against establishment and, I mean, I think people will do it. Um, but will they be able yeah, to sustain the repercussions? I wonder yeah. if they'll be able to sustain their practice. And, and I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure this question is asked every decade or every, you know, yeah. political generation or whatever. But I, I, um, I tend to be glass half full and optimistic and so forth. But I feel very uh, anxious. I am, a, I am anxious about the world and about where uh, creative discourse happens in it right now. I don't. That there's a safe um, space for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess the hopeful part of all of this is that it, it is not the first time that we've seen this cycle. And so we do sort of have to hunker down and tighten the belt and, you know, weather the storm. It just seems unfortunate to me that arts organizations uh, and artists, you know, and cultural organizations are um, among the, the um, you know, institutions or fields that are always so vulnerable because if, if that vulnerability factor were gone, then think well, how much... Imagine what could happen. Imagine what well, we could do. Well, it's like the film manufacturer, the pharmaceutical <laughs> company, right. that, you know, it's that same thing. I only thing. need if, one billion right? dollars, okay? I don't need a hundred billion. I just need one, one. billion. Right. And it's it's true, you know, the, and and I, you know, I've heard, I don't know, in the last week or so, a few times repeated, and I thought it was odd. And I thought, well, it's good that so many, somehow that's picking up on the airways or whatever I'm listening to, you know, the healing factor of art. I don't know if, if they, you know, if people could really, maybe maybe there's a future in, in getting that message out to people that appreciate the arts that we're, we were talking about, talking about the arts to 
the public, mm -hmm. not so mm -hmm. much to each other, but getting it out to the general public of the importance and, and how great it is, you know, yeah, that how, to establish, how to understand it and value it. That's a really big job because then I think and the values in, in that, to the me. fact that, that it's essential, that it's yeah. so. I do have a tragic end to the highwayman painting story because oh, no, no. I know you did start. <laughs> no, to lose so this that. is what you just reminded me. Like, Katie, I'm like, but you know, I love my mom, but mom oh, no. gave him away or oh, sold him for what? like a dollar because she was, you know, she got a divorce. And what do you do? You purge. And right, get rid of those everything. were the first things to go because oh, they had yeah. no value to her. Um, whereas as a kid, like they were my life and my world just to oh. jump into, but you know, and then later on I find out they're like, you know, at the history museum in South Florida and there's mom. a show. They ended up and on antique like, road show. Do you value it now, mom? And wow. I show her the book. Right, right. Because that's the other part is like, for her it was like, there was no, they were cheap, something right. they were bought, they weren't anything that she connected to. And why? Maybe she just didn't have the experiencing of seeing how you know art can strike your passions or, or right. communicate with you. And I think that's the big thing is that we need to we need people to see and to hear the effect that and to, it can you know, have to on you. Be right, able right. to take it in because if we haven't given people the foundation to really be open, then we are screwed. Yeah. So, one of my questions was like, what? let's <laughs> not end on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You got to ask one okay. last question. We okay. got to hit a home run here. No, right? no, I have two last questions. <laughs> one is one. That, that, but I think that that answered the one question, like that I had. What, what is the most important thing, other than money, for your foundations? And and I think it's that curiosity, yeah. openness, getting to the being to open people. to new experiences, yeah. because that's what we both our organizations deliver. Yeah. In addition to what they deliver yeah. the artists. Yes, you know. I agree with all of that. I think it's a in-person live encounter with an experience. Art. Yeah, an experience. As long as there's humans that can that that ex exchange stories, which is something to me really the biggest thing that well, it's, it's all like humans it's have. You sit and talk time. about stories, and it's a it's a it's a need. I mean, it's like oxygen, right? Yeah. It's not it's not it's a negotiable. It's yeah. not uh, we can't do without it. Yeah, there's a word for that. There's a word for that. Essential, <laughs> essential, essential. Thank you, Laurie. Right. Thank you. It's true. All right, so let's finish this up with tell me what's upcoming. You have something coming for this season, right? Yes, I'm we sure. do. And this is going to, well, this is going to air December 3rd, I think it's a Monday, of Art Basel Week. So maybe, what do you have that week? Well, you know what? Everyone uh, maybe should maybe go should let Lori start with that. Well, we, we purposefully do not program during our puzzle. Oh, okay. And because what we you're have found. You're sane and smart. The royal <laughs> I know, you're very smart. <laughs> no, yeah. it's really this. It's like we have found, whenever I used to say we in front of my father, he'd say, who's that? You and that little mouse in your pocket. <laughs> yes, so we have found that people don't really seem to want to buy a ticket and go sit down for two hours and look yeah. at something during Miami Art Week. But we launch right into the season in, in January with a program called Screen Dance, 
which is Dance on Film. Right. It's a wonderful right. program that we inherited from, we adopted, inherited it and adopted it from uh, Mary Loft and yeah. Tiger Tail Productions. And it's great. This year we're doing a new component, which is some great um, dance on film films, cinematic glory uh, at the Soundscape Park in, at the nice. New World Symphony oh. Center and uh, kind of opening up dance on film to a, a much larger audience. Oh. So I think that'll be really fun. It's in January, it'll be a nice time of year. People can sit outside oh, and beautiful. enjoy. Yeah. And, and then we also do programming at PAM during that week where we saw sh we do uh, present short films, dance on film, and we do uh, a, a screening at the Lightbox as well. So that's, a, that's kind of our big um, opener for the new calendar year. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Um, so, what, so what are you showing? I know well, you have you, a show for when Basel, you have right? Your podcast um, on for December third. The shows that will be up are Bethany Collins, and she has a show titled The Litany, and it's sort of at the core of this. Everything we do is really inviting artists, commission new projects, site specific, right. environmental. You need to come see them. So I'm not going to go into detail on all the projects. Um, because people will glaze over. It's like at Locus, you're always going to have different media and different experiences. And uh, Bethany has really just a beautiful and profound and so timely relevant. Um, the Litany is based on this book, this artist book that she did that is called America, a Hymnal. And this is an artist book that she researched and found over a hundred versions of my country tis of thee. Oh, wow. But that week during our Basel on Thursday from 10 till 5, we're going to have a durational singing of all 100 songs from volunteers, a choir, and it's going to be great. Oh, so we also have Michael Loveland, who's a Miami based again, that kind of constant pairing of someone from outside. Bethany's um, from Chicago. Uh, Michael Loveland is creating a new project. We also have uh, Jibane Khalil Huffman, who is very interested in sort of creating an experience. He's been here filming, and on the night of December 4th, he's going to have his video premiere on the back of a pickup truck flatbed oh, cool. with an LED screen that moves around the design district. <laughs> oh, cool. So those That's are just cool, some yeah. of the examples of types of projects. We have some great artists coming up. Okay, ladies, I think we've done it. It's really interesting. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for including me. I feel like I, I love got this. the... I love that. I'm going to immediately on the podcast around <laughs> just so I can talk to people. I want to <laughs> no, I mean, uh, Lori tells me, oh, I've heard about your podcast. It's really great. I really love it. And I said, well, I was actually thinking of approaching you about being on it. And she said, I said, but I like a conversation rather than a one-on-one. -on -one. So oh, think about who you might want to talk to. I didn't think and, about uh, it. No, in a second. <laughs> I, the first person that has ever just like right then and there, she said, that's oh, so Beth Boone. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> you're so sweet. But you're so on my mind because yeah. I think that there is just so much synergy between our organizations that I'm always wanting to call you up and say, how do you do this? <laughs> well, I, as I tell the team I work with, I just make this shit up. <laughs> uh, well, it's good shit, so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, right. Yes. So you have to go. So forward. thank you. Thank you. No, thank you guys.
thanks to Autoncion Band for lending us our podcast music, Dano Instrumental, recorded and mixed by Alexander Mogouti. Go to autoncionband.com to listen and purchase. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. I think you'll agree our guests make great company. We'll be back in two weeks. Art and Company is recorded in the studio of artist Alette Simmons Jimenez, that's me, located just north of downtown Miami, where I record, edit, and produce all the episodes. Images, links, and more details on our guests from this episode and all others can be found on our webpage, artandcompanypodcast.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you rate us on iTunes and let us know what you think of the podcast. And of course, subscribe to make tuning into our next episode easy. Mm-hmm.